Hello and welcome back to Heights Library's podcast, Unpacking 1619, where you can explore the interviews we've collected with scholars from around the country, in which we unpack topics relating to race in America. I'm your host, John Pichet, and I'm thrilled to share these interviews with you here. Barbara Krauthammer joins us for the second episode of our five-part series on slavery in North America's indigenous population. Professor Krauthammer is a professor of history and dean of the College of Humanities and Fine Arts at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst. We discussed her book, Black Slaves, Indian Masters, Slavery, Emancipation, and Citizenship in the Native American South. Here's our discussion from September 12, 2022. I'm Barbara Krauthammer. I'm Professor of History and Dean of the College of Humanities and Fine Arts at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Well, thank you for joining us. Um, today we're going to be talking about uh, your book, Black Slaves, Indian Masters, Slavery, Emancipation, Citizenship in the Native American Song. And I'd like to just begin by uh, asking you why you wrote the book and kind of what you hope to achieve with it. Oh, that's a great question. Um, I wrote the book partly out of my own um, desire to learn more about um, Native American presence in the antebellum South, um, Native American connection to the institution of slavery. And I trained as a historian of African-American life, of African-American slavery. Um, And was a little mystified by the absence of Native Americans in most histories of the South and the development of slavery and had the good fortune to have an advisor and a cohort of um, colleagues in graduate school and after graduate school who were also asking similar questions. So that's that was the book's real origin story. It was um, really my desire to learn more and felt like that history of slavery was incomplete without the acknowledgement of the Native presence in the in the American South. Well, one of the things that I was struck uh, most by in the book is this tension between uh, Native American sovereignty and uh, Black unfreedom or Black slavery, and how those two kind of continuously played through, through the history of the Choctaw and Chickasaw nation. So maybe you could kind of give us an overview of how slavery came to those Uh, territories in those uh, nations? Sure. So Native Americans um, in what we think of as the American South, right, um, were no strangers to ideas of unfreedom or subordination or coercion. You know, when Spanish explorers arrive in the Gulf Coast in the 16th century, right, they witness practices of captivity and servitude. What changes over time in the Native American context is what captivity and servitude mean and what they look like, right? So it changes over time from practices typically associated with war um, and revenge in which the victor would uh, incorporate the losers, um, family members into their own clans and societies. Um, And so certainly unfreedom was likely harsh and unpleasant for those who were on the receiving end of captivity and servitude, but it typically wasn't a lifelong stigmatized, um, dehumanized position in the society. 
that changes by the late um, late 1600s, early 1700s, as Native Americans and British and French and Spanish colonial settlers um, are coming into increasing contact with each other across the South, right from the Gulf Coast. Um, west all the way to the Atlantic coast in the east and up the eastern seaboard. And it changes in multiple ways, right? There's no single line of change. Um, in some instances, Native Americans start to provide refuge for enslaved people of African descent who are escaping their European colonial owners. Um, and some Native American communities gain an understanding of the harshness of what's becoming racial chattel slavery in the colonies in that context. Um, in other contexts, some Native peoples start engaging in commerce, in trafficking in African peoples, enslaved African peoples, buying and selling them as proxies for colonial settlers. Um, some Native Americans act um, effectively as bounty hunters tracking fugitive slaves. So there are a variety of ways that Native peoples um, come into contact with the institution of chattel slavery as it's emerging. And different communities, different societies start to make different kinds of decisions about how they'll continue those interactions um, with some Native nations in the Southern colonies moving towards adopting racial chattel slavery and acquiring people of African descent as property to use explicitly as unfree laborers. Well, that's interesting because I think one of the things that um, you draw really well is the idea of how the racialization of the institution of slavery worked for and against the Native Americans. Because as they were fighting becoming racialized themselves, they were racializing uh, African Americans, but it didn't work out. It was very complicated, I guess I should say. <laughs> yeah, it, it, was, it was very complicated, which I think, um, you know, is always the great reminder that these categories of racial identification that are being imposed on people um, and categories of racial identification that people are adopting to identify themselves are shifting, right? And they're shifting based on political circumstances, based on economic and social circumstances. Um, and so it's complicated and confusing because this is a society that is trying to make sense of all sorts of inequalities and hierarchies. And um, kind of how that racialization happens um, is in part due to missionaries, but it's also in part due to the institution of slavery, correct? So you have kind of this you know, anti-interracial marriage come in, but then there's the patriarchy that is kind of or founded by the missionary. Sure. Um, yeah, absolutely. One of the things by the time we get to the era of the American Revolution and the early Republic, many white Americans, many Euro-Americans, and certainly um, many in prominent social and political positions hold some kind of belief that Native Americans have the capacity to quote unquote become civilized, right? Which is means to adopt the social and economic patterns of Euro-Americans. 
Um, and people hold this idea in distinction to people of African descent, right, who they maintain do not have the intellectual or moral or physical capacity to be like Euro-Americans. And so um, starting from George Washington, but then who, who in 1791 um, works with his secretary of the interior to come up with a plan for quote unquote civilizing Native Americans, right, that rather than exterminating indigenous populations, the goal is to bring them into the um, American social and economic fabric. And one of the cornerstones of this quote unquote civilization plan is um, conversion to Christianity and the reliance on missionaries, right, on Christian missionaries to go live in native communities, um, to convert them to Christianity to teach them, if you will, obviously through a um, hierarchical way, you know, this is not necessarily teaching that's invited by Native American communities, but to teach them, as you said, patriarchal social relations and economic relations, right? And specifically this idea that men will be farmers um, and that women will do domestic work in the home which is a shift for Southern native communities where typically um, women were farmers or agriculturalists and men were hunters. Um, so, so there's this idea that missionaries will bring a kind of Christian patriarchy to the native American South. Right, and you can almost, I mean, jokingly say the men didn't want to do that. So then they hired slaves to do it working in the, in the fields. But I think this, um, um, the tension between kind of going back to kind of the Washington, we had this, and we'll get to the missionaries back in a minute, but the civilization versus removal. And right. you have uh, kind of this back and forth between can we civilize, do we want to integrate them or do we want to remove them? But basically it was to get the land. And that tension sets up a lot in the Chickasaw, Chickasaw and Choctaw nations, correct? Yes, absolutely. Right. The Chickasaws and Choctaws um, claim as their homelands, as their sovereign territory, um, much of Mississippi and Alabama, what we know today is Mississippi and Alabama, um, is Indian country, is, is Choctaw and Chickasaw land. And so, right. So on the part of both um, these new state governments after the revolution and the national government, um, there's a real interest in this incredibly fertile land that um, that white Americans see as sort of prime agricultural territory. Um, and of course, Native Americans see as, you know, their historic hunting grounds and the place where their society has been for millennia. Um, so there's this real tension between um, civilization, right, and incorporating natives into the local society or removal, right, and pushing them or gradually pushing them off the land, um, which is eventually what comes to happen, right, by the 1830s under Andrew Jackson. Um, but certainly after the revolution, um, I, I, I think there's some uncertainty as to how, how it will play out um, on the part of white settlers who are moving into the region um, and uh, and government authorities? 
And thank you for that. The, uh, I want to kind of get back to missionaries now and just the, um, the tension that they served in the communities of Native Americans, because as slavery really takes a foothold and becomes a dominant uh, economic system, the missionaries, only they participate in it, but then they're also a, a location of resistance and um, kind of pushback by African-Americans, correct? Yes, absolutely. Um, on the one hand, missionaries are, are squeamish, let's say, about the institution of slavery. Um, they're certainly not what we would call by today's standards anti-racist, right? They certainly hold dear um, the notion that people of African descent are lesser than um, people of European descent and are probably lesser than indigenous peoples. Um, on the other hand, um, they're, they're squeamish about the violence of the institution of slavery. Um, they're squeamish about the dehumanization of other human beings, right, of enslaved people. Um, so they have to, and they have to balance um, their place as outsiders in Native American communities, right? And as Native Americans, Choctaws and Chickasaws in particular, um, the elite at least are taking up the practice of owning, of purchasing and owning African-American slaves. Um, the missionaries don't want to alienate their Native American hosts, right? The missionaries are there to, to run their missions, to Christianize and... Um, native populations. And so they don't want to alienate the elite leaders by coming out too strongly against the institution of chattel slavery. Um, and on the other hand, they want to find ways to remain true to their moral beliefs that slavery is inhumane um, and that enslaved people should have access to um, church and religion. So the mission centers become this really interesting meeting place for enslaved people, Northern missionaries and Southern Native Americans. Um, and so enslaved people see it, find opportunities to use the missionaries as a way to gain education for themselves, right? As a way to gain literacy, um, as a way to gain access to information about the wider world. Um, in some instances, missionaries are sympathetic enough to enslaved people that they um, allow enslaved people to work for wages, right? So the missionaries want enslaved people as laborers, but because they're squeamish about exploiting people, um, they'll pay them wages, which enslaved people then use to purchase their own freedom. Well, and that freedom uh, becomes a sticky wicket, let's say, to the <laughs> to the uh, uh, future of the, the nations. But um, I kind of want to move into this uh, very, what I found uh, surprising was that the uh, Chickasaw and Choctaw nations fought on, sided with the Confederacy. You know, as we move towards the Civil War, um, they, they, and that's mainly because of their adoption and assimilation into this kind of, kind of Southern white culture, correct? 
Yes. Um, so after the, the Choctaws and Chickasaws are forcibly removed from Mississippi, they're relocated to what we now know as Oklahoma. At the time, it was Indian territory. It wasn't a state, um, as are the Cherokees and the Creeks and the Seminoles and a number of other um, Native nations. And by 1861, um, those nations are, for the most part, slaveholding nations. Um they are concerned about their rights, their property rights in enslaved people, right? Their their ability to continue buying and selling African-Americans as property, um, as laborers. They're also concerned that the emergence of the Civil War is diverting um, federal resources away from Indian territory, right? So they're concerned that their borders um, that their land won't be protected and safeguarded anymore by existing treaties with the United States um, as the United States is fracturing. And so for those reasons, um, they enter into treaties with the Confederacy um, in the early first year of the American Civil War. Um, they side with the Confederacy. Certainly, as in the United States, there are factions who want to side with the union. There are factions that want to stay neutral and not get involved. But in the case of the Choctaw and Chickasaw nations, their leaders um, enter into treaties with the Confederacy. And for the most part, the nations are not divided. Those two nations, at least, are not divided about that decision. Um, and leaders believe that siding with the Confederacy is the way to preserve property preserves slavery in the Indian nations and thus also to preserve their territory, to preserve their right to self-government, um, including their right to legalize slavery. Well, and that leads to an interesting um, situation after the war and the Confederacy's gone and, and they um, have to negotiate with this new federal government. And, um, you know, the, the Treaty of 1866 uh, you spent a lot, quite a bit of uh, the book talking about this, and, and maybe you could kind of tell us what that was and what the effect of it was after that. Sure. So because the Choctaw and Chickasaw nations entered a treaty with the Confederacy that effectively broke their treaties with the United States. So they have to reestablish diplomatic relations with, um, with the federal government. Uh, now, lawmakers in Washington see a great opportunity here to use this um, necessity of reestablishing these diplomatic ties to claim more Indian land, right? You use this as an opportunity to exert more control over native peoples um, and to really use that leverage um, that the Choctaws and Chickasaws had sided with the Confederacy, had been part of the secession movement, um, to take the leverage to demand concessions from the nations. So for the Choctaws and Chickasaws, their 1866 treaty with the national government includes provisions that they will give up land, right? They'll give up more of their territory to the United States. It also includes provisions um, almost as a testing ground for the amendments to the Constitution that will come granting citizenship to African-Americans in the 14th Amendment. Um, the treaties of 1866 require the Choctaws and Chickasaws 
to what's called adopt formerly enslaved people as citizens in the nations. And this then sets off a struggle between the, the Indian governments and the U.S. government um, that resonates today. I mean, these cases still wind up in the courts, um, both in Native American courts and in U.S. courts, truly up through this year, uh, because that requirement, right, of the United States saying to a sovereign Native American nation, you must make this group of people citizens in your nation. The Native American governmental leaders say, you're trampling on our sovereignty. You don't get to decide who can be a citizen in our nation. That's the right of our government to decide. And of course, the position of the United States is you don't have that right anymore. We have that right as the victor in the Civil War to dictate right, the terms of this treaty. And so that conflict lasts really truly up until this year um, with debates over who has the right to determine citizenship in Native American nations and what the fate of formerly enslaved people and their descendants will be. Will they be citizens in the Indian nations where they were enslaved or will they have citizenship in the United States or both or nowhere? And that um, part of this is um, reliant on um, that the idea, the Dawes Commission idea of um, you know the blood, uh, what was it called, blood quanta, and I mean that's incredibly racist on one hand, but it also kind of points to a lineage of you know mixed ancestry. So how do we reconcile kind of that racist? with the more ancestral, is that part of the tension of what's going on today or? It's, it certainly is now part of the tension. Um, what happens in the late 19th century, as you mentioned, the Dawes Commission in the 1880s, um, as the federal government move, moves to erode even further Native American sovereignty um, and their right to self-government, um, and under uh, Senator Henry Dawes, right, sends a commission to Indian Territory to create a census, right, a census role of all of the Native Americans in Indian Territory and the former enslaved people, people of African descent. So they create two roles, right, what are called Indians by blood and freedmen, referring to those who were freed from slavery. Um, and this idea of blood quanta, right, is, a, um, is an imposed set of categories, right? It's an imposed set of categories by Euro-Americans who, again, believe that Native Americans, if they intermarry with Euro-Americans, will become whiter, both phenotypically, right, in terms of their appearance, but will become more assimilated into Euro-American culture um, and society. And so this goes against in many Native um, cultures and communities that are determined, lineages determined matrilineally through the mother's brother's lines. Um, and this now imposes, again, a sort of patriarchal lineage of who is your father. Um, 
some Native communities, you know, were less concerned about who intermarried into your family again, but who you were related to. And so this Dawes role, again, is focused on, right, who are you descended from? Um, and it does, it creates the tension, particularly for African-Americans, um, some of whom are to have Native American ancestors, right, either by choice or by force, um, during the era of slavery, um, and that those connections, those connections to Native American ancestors are often erased or overlooked when people of African American descent are automatically put on the freedman role, right? So they're categorized as quote unquote black, right? Even though they might have a Native father, a Native grandfather, Native grandmother, um, and so that, too, is part of um, the tension and conflict in the 1880s and that continues today um, over how to how to reconcile what are two really complicated histories of um, of oppression in many respects. That's what I think the, the book does so well is it kind of shows this. Um, I hate to use the word tension again, but kind of this creeping um, influence of the white supremacist uh, racist systems of Euro-Americans and then also the patriarchy of the missionaries and, and really shows how um, through each chapter how, how it's incorporated and resisted at the same time. And um, I think it's really important for that, this topic especially because it, it's such a ripe ground for showing how systemic racism and these systems become embedded, correct? Yes, I, I agree. And I think um, one of the things that I always found fascinating about this material um, is that it also shows the difficulty of solidarity, right? Sometimes people would say to me, well, you know, why didn't Native Americans and African Americans recognize their common cause? Um, and, and I think it's an important reminder that, you know, sol solidarity and recognizing common cause is really hard when people are struggling to protect individual interests as well um, and to balance, you know, distinct cultural patterns and histories and values. And, and so it is, as you say, I think a, a tension that runs through the book of on the one hand, appreciating the larger context and then making decisions that are about, you know, self-interest or community interest rather than a collective interest. Thanks for listening to the Unpacking 1619. For more information on Heights Library 1619 Project Discussion Group, or to check out more interviews with scholars, please visit heightslibrary.org. See you next episode, wherever you listen to podcasts.